The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O Lord, teach thy people to love thy house best of all dwellings, thy scriptures best of all books, thy sacraments best of all gifts, the communion of saints best of all company, and that we may as one family and in one place give thanks and adore thy glory. Help us to keep always thy day, the first of days, holy unto thee, our maker, our resurrection, and our life, God blessed forever. Amen. So we begin today with John chapter 10. If you have your Bibles, please open them to the 10th chapter of John. And we will read through the first nine verses and then go back and take a closer look at what's taking place. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying. So again, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and go out and find pasture. When you stop and think about all of the titles that are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament, you realize that it quickly runs the number into the hundreds. There are hundreds of titles, hundreds of names that are ascribed to the Messiah, to the Savior, or to Jesus specifically. Here are just a few of them. Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega. You know that means the beginning and the end. He is described in the epistle to the Hebrews as the author and the perfecter of our faith. In the Old Testament in Isaiah, but this appears again in the New Testament, but in Isaiah, I only mention the Old Testament passage simply because most of you are familiar with Handel's Messiah, and you know that this appears in that. He's described as the wonderful and as the counselor. He's described in 1 Timothy as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, in Revelation as the Lion of Judah, in Matthew as the Son of David and the Son of Man. He's described in Ephesians as the chief cornerstone. Hebrews says he is the great high priest. 1 Corinthians says that he is the second Adam. Revelation says he's the root of Jesse and the bright and morning star. He is described in the Gospel of John, of course, we've already seen some of these titles, as the bread of life, the light of the world, the way, the truth, and the life, the vine, and the word. All of these titles are ascribed to Jesus in the New Testament and throughout the scriptures, the coming, the anticipated Messiah. And yet, I think it's no exaggeration to say that there are few images that are more beloved. This is probably, in fact, the most beloved image of Jesus anywhere in scripture of the Savior, and that is Jesus as a good shepherd. If you ask people if there is one psalm that they know 
One psalm that perhaps they have memorized, it is the 23rd psalm, the Lord is my shepherd. It is a marvelous image. And as I said, it is rich in biblical history, like all of these other titles. The 23rd psalm is the most obvious example, but it's not the only one. Psalm 100 describes God and his relationship to his people. And it says, we are the sheep of his pasture, and he is our shepherd. Isaiah says that God tends his flock like a shepherd. And in Mark, we are described, the people at least, the mass of the people were described as sheep. We're told that Jesus on one occasion looked upon the crowds. He was exhausted. He had been ministering for some time. It was his desire to escape from the crowds and get a rest. Uh, and yet he looked upon them out there. And we're told that they were harried and helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. So this is a powerful image that we have. It's rich in biblical history. It's worth pondering for a moment, since Jesus invokes it here in John chapter 10, to ask, what do we know about sheep? Why is this image so powerful? Why was it so important to the people in that day, and why is it so important to us today? Well, first of all, we have to remember, and you've heard me say this many times before, Jesus used images that the people of his day could easily relate to. Very few of us, while we've all seen sheep, very few of us, I suspect, have ever spent a considerable amount of time around sheep. Now, I know that somebody out there grew up on a farm and you're accustomed to sheep, but I think probably the vast majority of us have not spent a great deal of time around sheep. If we've seen them, we've either seen them um, in television shows or we've seen them in petting zoos or we've seen them in foreign countries, but very few of us have actually been around sheep. And yet the people of that day, this was, a, this was a common appearance. This was something they saw all the time. They were familiar with sheep. What can we say about sheep? Well, one of the things you often hear is that sheep are the stupidest animals in the world. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on either this passage from John chapter 10 or the 23rd Psalm in which the preacher doesn't say, you know, we are all sheep, and sheep are the stupidest animals in the world. Now, I don't know, quite frankly, if most preachers are experts in animal husbandry or anything like that. I don't know if they actually know that sheep are the stupidest animals in the world. But we do know this about sheep. At least in Jesus' day, sheep were defenseless creatures. You know, there's no way that a sheep is ever going to fend off a predator. They just won't. They are absolutely defenseless. Sheep are helpless. That's another thing. They have to be cared for. They have to be tended. Sheep are straying. They have a tendency to wander off. This was something I did notice. Um, I've been going to the Holy Land for many years. I've made countless trips there, and I've been to other countries where you find sheep. But I remember one time sitting in a restaurant, and right next to the restaurant, uh, near Bethlehem as a matter of fact, there was a field, and there was a shepherd out there in that field, and he was tending his flock. And the flock was made up of both goats and sheep. That was not uncommon in the first century. I know we talk about Jesus separating the sheep from the goats, but the reason for that is that shepherds generally cared for both of them, and they were in the same flock, sheep and goats. And I noticed something about sheep as opposed to the goats. They were both eating, but when a goat eats, it's really interesting, the goat will bend over and pull up a tuft of grass, 
and then he will chew that tuft of grass with his head held up, looking around. And that's because the goat is vigilant. The goat is watching for a predator. Contrast that with the way that the sheep ate. The sheep would pull up a tuft of grass and never lift its head. And it would just chew, chew, chew until it had consumed that tuft of grass and then it wandered on to the next tuft of grass. And it did precisely the same thing. It never looked around for a predator and it never looked around to see where it was going. Its eyes were fixed just on that next tuft of grass. And so what you notice is that it had a tendency to wander off, not paying attention to where it was, and so the shepherd had to bring it back into the fold. Now, I do think that that is an accurate picture of us. <laughs> but sheep are defenseless. They're helpless. They're straying. Something else about sheep, they are filthy. I know we have this lovely image of Mary and her little lamb. Its fleece was white as snow. Well, if you've ever seen sheep out in the wild or sheep being tended, they are not white. They are filthy. They are dirty. I won't tell you why they're dirty, but you can sort of imagine why it is. When a sheep is sheared and it is, its wool is going to be used, it has to be cleaned because they are filthy, dirty creatures. And yet I want you to understand something that sheep, to the shepherds, are of great value. And that was true in the ancient world. Uh, sheep were valuable creatures. Uh, they produced wool, and most people, that's what they wore. They wore wool clothing in the first century. And so sheep were very valuable. They were important. People who were propertyed people, oftentimes they might lease out their land to shepherds or... They might possibly hire shepherds to tend their flocks, but it was not uncommon for propertyed people to have large flocks and herds. And so what do we know about sheep? Well, we know all of these things. They are defenseless, they are helpless, they are straying, they are dirty, but they are nevertheless of great value to the shepherd. Well, it's true, the New Testament does depict us as sheep. And I don't know if we're the stupidest creatures on the planet, but I do know this. We are defenseless. In fact, next Sunday, I have the privilege of preaching on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. That's such an important story because if you think about it, we too are assailed by temptations, aren't we? And they come from all different sources. And truth be known, in and of our own strength, we are absolutely defenseless against the wiles of the enemy. We are helpless. We cannot help ourselves. We say it in one of the great colics of the church, O oh Lord, seeing as we have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. It's absolutely true. You and I can do nothing. We've talked about that in this Gospel of John already. When Jesus healed the man who was lame at the pool of Bethesda, we're told that he was surrounded by the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And I said that that is an accurate picture of what we are spiritually. We are the blind. We cannot seek God. We are the lame and we are the paralyzed. We are incapable of going to God on our own. We stray. How often do we stray? Well, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for myself. I stray on a daily basis. And the good shepherd has to bring me back. And I realize that I'm a sinner. And you're a sinner too. 
There is no one righteous, no, not one. Even our most righteous deeds in the eyes of the world, we're told, are filthy rags in the sight of God. So that's what sheep are. What about shepherds? What are shepherds like? Well, shepherds, because of all of this, were absolutely vital in the first century to the welfare of the sheep. The only way that the sheep was going to survive, the only way that the flock would survive is if the shepherd cared for them, provided their every need, took them to the pasture where they might find food, cared for them, kept them clean. When I say sheep were absolutely, absolutely defenseless, it's absolutely true. Do you know that if a sheep ends up on its back, it hasn't the ability to right itself? If a, if a sheep falls down in a crevice and ends up on its back, the sheep hasn't the ability to get itself upright. Now you say, well, that's not a tragedy. Ah, but it is a tragedy. Because what happens is that gases build up in the sheep's body and it actually will die in that upside down position. The shepherd has to come and set it right side up or the sheep will perish. So shepherds were absolutely vital to the welfare of the sheep. And that's what Jesus is talking about here when he talks about being a shepherd and he talks about the sheep. But it needs to be remembered that in the first century, there were good shepherds and there were bad shepherds. There were good shepherds and there were bad shepherds. Keep your finger there in John for a moment and turn back to Matthew for just a moment. To Matthew chapter 7. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says something very interesting in here. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Beware of false prophets who come to you dressed as sheep, but in fact they are inside what? Ravenous wolves. So there were sheep in the ancient world. There were shepherds, but Jesus makes it very clear. There were some shepherds that were good, some shepherds that were bad. Now, the important thing to understand here in John chapter 10 is that Jesus is saying these words right on the heels of the encounter that he had had with the Jewish religious leaders. What had happened at the end of chapter 9? Jesus had healed the man born blind. That's what we looked at last week. This man who had been born blind, the question the disciples asked was, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents. This was so that the Son of God might be glorified. And Jesus, we're told, proceeded to heal this man, which was good news for him. But it caused him to run afoul of the Jewish religious leaders. Why? Because the day on which he performed the miracle was the Sabbath. And so as far as the Jewish religious leaders were concerned, Jesus had violated the fourth commandment, which was to keep holy the Sabbath day. No work was to be done on that day. 
And the religious leaders became so enraged, they not only went after Jesus, they went after the man who'd been healed. Eventually, we're told, casting him out, excommunicating him from the fellowship. So it's right on the heels of this that Jesus says these words about good shepherds and bad shepherds. It's really interesting to note that most often in the Gospels, when there is a time period between one event and another, there are these words of transition. Words like, after these things, Jesus did such and such. Or, after this, Jesus did such and such. Or, if you take a look at John chapter 9, the beginning, it says, as he passed by. It's a transition. It suggests to us that a certain period of time has elapsed between one event and the other. What is interesting is that the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 has no transition whatsoever. So it's right at this moment when Jesus is running afoul of the Jewish religious leaders, when they are seeking to discredit him, or worse, that he speaks these words about good shepherds and bad shepherds. Now you need to understand what Jesus was saying would have resonated with the people. And that's because shepherds in the first century really did have a mixed reputation. Of course, as I said, this is a rich biblical image, and everybody knew that there were good shepherds. In fact, two of the most famous people in the Old Testament were shepherds. Moses was a shepherd. In fact, we're told he was out tending flocks when God appeared to him in the burning bush. And the other famous shepherd, of course, is David, the author of so many of the Psalms, including the shepherd psalm. And of course, God often appears in the Old Testament, as I said, as the shepherd of his people, caring for the nation of Israel. So there was, in the minds of many people, this image of shepherd as good people. But there was also this other side. Shepherds in Jesus' day were at the very bottom of the social ladder. The very bottom of the social ladder. They were regarded as ritually unclean because shepherds had to care for the flock and because the flock was absolutely defenseless, the shepherd had to watch over the flock how many days a week? Every day of the week. There was no rest whatsoever for the shepherd. He had to be vigilant day in and day out, basically. What that meant is that shepherds, generally speaking, did not participate in religious ceremonies. They didn't go up to the temple. They didn't make sacrifices and so forth. And because they didn't do those things, they were regarded as unclean. They were unclean. So they were outcasts socially in many ways. They were outcasts in a religious way. And they also had a reputation, at least some of them, for being what we would call unreliable or disreputable. You know, if somebody else's flock managed to wander into your territory and you took one of their sheep or two of their sheep, well, you know, stuff happens. And you can't be held accountable for that sort of thing. It's sort of like cattle rustling. In the Old West, well, there was a lot of that when it came to shepherds. 
And the result of this was that they were not highly regarded. In fact, shepherds were one of the few people in Jewish society who were not permitted to give testimony in a court of law. Because it was believed that their testimony would be unreliable. So that's what shepherds were like in the first century. Which is why, if you think about it, it's really quite extraordinary that the first people to ever hear the news of Christ's birth were what? Shepherds. shepherds. We have this romantic image of these humble, hard-working, thrifty individuals. But actually, that was not the image at all. The very fact that the angels came to the shepherds was an announcement that this birth of the Savior was a message for all people, people of high estate and low estate. In fact, what you notice is that it was the high people, the people in exalted positions, who paid no mind to the birth of Christ. But the message was announced by the heavenly messengers to these shepherds. So in the first century, shepherds had a mixed reputation. There were good shepherds, and there were bad shepherds. And what was true of those who watched over the real sheep was also true of spiritual shepherds as well. There were good shepherds, and there were bad shepherds, and that is what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 10. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. Verse 7, so again, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So good shepherds and bad shepherds. Now, here's the question. How do you distinguish between the two? If what was true of the sheep and the shepherd in the first century is also true of spiritual shepherds, that there are shepherds of God's people, some of whom would lead the people astray, some of whom would desire to keep the people safe, how do we distinguish between good shepherds and bad shepherds? I would argue that this is one of the most pressing issues in the world today and in the church today. Because there is so much false teaching out there. So how do we distinguish between the two? Well, Jesus tells us how we are to distinguish between the two. He describes good shepherds. He says the good shepherds are those who know the sheep and who are known by the sheep. Look again at chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. The shepherd knows his sheep. Good shepherds know their flock. They know their failures, their temptations, their sins, as well as their victories. And the shepherd 
knowing all of those things carefully, tenderly, lovingly tends the flock. I love the way the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5. He says, at just the right time, when we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Christ doesn't just love us when we manage to get our act together. When we manage to straighten our lives out, when we manage to prove ourselves lovable or worthy of affection, God loves us in spite of the fact that we are none of those things. The author of Hebrews says that you and I have a great high priest. He says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but we have a great high priest who has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet did not sin. Therefore, we can go with confidence before the throne of grace and find help in time of need. A good shepherd understands the sheep. That's why Jesus was a good shepherd. It's because he has gone through the entire gamut of the human condition. Everything that you have faced, he has faced. And he understands. And he knows. And because he knows, he is mighty to save. That's the first thing that Jesus says about a good shepherd. He knows the sheep. Here's the second thing. He calls them by name. He calls us each by name. You can see this even in the Gospels. How many times Jesus went up to individuals and called them to follow him? You know, if you've got this image of Jesus just sort of out there preaching and everybody just sort of follows him, there was some of that. But very often Jesus went up to individuals and he called them by name. You see that in Matthew chapter 9 with the calling of Matthew or Levi, the tax collector. No teacher in the first century who was considered to be a reputable teacher would have ever called a tax collector. Now, I know we don't like tax collectors either, but listen, they were absolutely despised, hated in the first century. You'll notice that in the New Testament, tax collectors and sinners are always lumped together. Did you ever notice that? <laughs> tax collectors and sinners. It, it's because they were the equivalent. Tax collectors in the first century were Jews very often, but they worked for the Romans. They worked for the Romans. In other words, they worked for the enemy because the Jews hated the Romans. They were a vassal state of the Roman Empire. They hated the Romans. And here was something else. Tax collectors tended to be very wealthy. Why? Because they would go out and they would collect sums of money from people, but they would often collect more than was required by the government. And who was checking on them? The emperor and far off Rome? No. And so what would they do? They would say, well, actually, you owe this amount of money, and it might be twice what you actually owed, and they would pocket the rest. Tax collectors were absolutely hated, despised, and yet Jesus called one, and he called him by name. The same was true of Zacchaeus, who also worked for the Romans. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a what? Wee little man who climbed up in the sycamore tree. Do you remember this story? And Jesus was passing by. Nobody wanted to give Zacchaeus a place on the front line so that he could see Jesus as he came into the town. Absolutely not. We hate Zacchaeus. 
You might have power over us under other circumstances, but not this occasion. Zacchaeus had to climb up in the tree to see Jesus. But we're told that as Jesus came by, he looked up in the tree and he said what? Now, if you know the song, he said what? Zacchaeus, you come down. He called the man by his name. How about the story of the raising of Lazarus, which is coming up in the very next chapter? We're told that Jesus went to the home of Mary and Martha and Bethany. Lazarus, of course, had died. Martha comes out and she says to him, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Do you believe this? And she said, yes, Lord, I believe. Jesus goes to the mouth of the tomb and we see all these people weeping and wailing. We're told that Jesus wept. You all know that's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. He had compassion. He understood the sheep. He understood the people, the the struggles they were going through. And he himself was moved. He wept. But then he did something. He told them to remove the stone. And Martha said, no, we can't remove the stone. He's been in there for four days. There'll be an odor. And Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And then he cried out in a loud voice. And what did he cry out? He said, Lazarus, Eleazar, come out. He called him by name. And that sheep heard the shepherd's voice, recognized it, and came out. And to me, one of the most powerful images of this is in John chapter 20. It's after the resurrection. You know that the women had gone to the tomb early in the morning with the spices. It was a labor of love. When they get there, they notice that what? The stone has been rolled away and the tomb is empty. Well, not quite empty. The grave clothes were still there and they encountered an angel. And the angel said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He's been raised just as he said. And the women hurried back into town. But apparently, Mary Magdalene returned to the tomb at some point, weeping, heartbroken. She didn't know what to believe. Was he really alive? Was he not alive? Had somebody taken the body? And if he was alive, where had he gone? And she encounters a man there. And the man says to her, why are you so troubled? And she thought he was the gardener. Remember that? Through her veil of tears. And she said, sir, they have taken my Lord and I don't know where they have laid him. If you know, please tell me and I will go and I will find him. She thought he was the gardener. This is one of the things that's really interesting. That after the resurrection... Hardly anybody recognized Jesus. Did you know that? The disciples didn't recognize him. Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him until he spoke. And what did he say? He said, Mary. And when she heard that voice, she recognized her shepherd. I want you to understand that if you're a Christian today, if you really are a believer, and when I say a Christian, you say, well, of course we're all Christians. We all go to church. It's not the same thing. As you have already seen, the sheep know the shepherd, and the shepherd know the sheep. 
Christianity, as I say, ad nauseum, is not about religion. It's about a relationship. It's about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. If you are a Christian, it is because the shepherd knows you and has called you by name. He has called you by name. So the good shepherds know the sheep. They are known by the sheep. He calls them by name. And here's something out. Jesus says he leads them out. He leads them out. Leads them out where? Leads them out where? They come in and they go out. He says, what does that mean? Well, keep your finger there in John and turn to Psalm 23. I know most of you know it by heart. There's one particular passage that I want to bring to your attention. 23rd Psalm. Now, I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. If you've memorized the 23rd Psalm, chances are you memorized the Old King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. That's the verse. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Do you know that sheep will almost never lie down? They will not lie down and rest unless they are free from all discomfort, unless they are free from all threat, unless they are completely satisfied. If there are flies that are biting them, sheep will not lie down. If they are not fully satisfied, sheep will not lie down. If they are fearful of something, if something has frightened them, they will not lie down. When the text says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, it means he's going to provide everything for his sheep. So much so that they are completely contented and capable of lying down. Jesus says the good shepherd is the shepherd that knows his sheep. He understands their failures, their temptations, their struggles. He is the one who calls them by name. And he is the one who will lead them out into pastures where they will be completely satisfied. That is the promise for those who follow Jesus Christ. That is the promise for those who follow Jesus Christ. Now go back to John chapter 10, because Jesus uses a couple of different images here to describe himself as the good shepherd. He describes himself as the shepherd, but he also describes himself as the gate to the sheep pen. That's one of the reasons why this particular section of John's gospel, while it's filled with wonderful imagery, is sometimes difficult for commentators to understand because Jesus mixes the images here. First, he's the shepherd. Now he's the gate in verses 7 through 9. Just as there were two types of shepherds in the ancient world, so there were two types of sheep pen in the ancient world. Two types of sheep pens. There were those that you would find in the city and in the towns. Shepherds from time to time had to go into town to get provisions. They had to go into town to get supplies. And just like you see in the old westerns, when they would drive the cattle into town, they would take them to the end of the street and put them in a corral. 
the cattle went into a corral. The same thing was true in the ancient world. When the shepherd took his flocks into town, he would drive them through the town, and normally just outside of town, at the end of the main street, there would be one of these sheep pens. It was a corral. Now, when the sheep were driven into that, the next morning they had to be brought out. But here was the problem. Lots of shepherds would come in, and all of the sheep would get mixed together in that big sheep pen in town. And so in the morning, when the shepherd was going to lead them out into the fields, he had to call out his sheep. How did he do that? Well, every shepherd had his own particular call. I saw this in Ireland some years ago. They have a very similar situation in parts of Ireland, where all of these sheep would be driven into one great pen, but in the morning, this one shepherd had a whistle, and he would come and he would blow this whistle. It was like a dog whistle. And only his sheep would leave the sheep pen and follow him. The same was true in the ancient world. The sheep not only were recognized by the shepherd, but they knew the shepherd's voice. And when he called them out, they followed him. Now that was one type of sheep pen. The other type of sheep pen was the rural sheep pen. That when the shepherd took them out into the fields and watched over his flocks by night, just as the shepherds were doing when the angels appeared to them at the time of the birth of Christ, when they were out there in those fields, they didn't have a big, well-built corral. What they would normally do is take stones, because they are readily available in that part of the world, and they would make a small corral, or maybe only two or three feet high, and it didn't have a gate. Instead, what would happen was that the shepherd would lay in front of the entrance. He was the gate. And the shepherd would not allow the sheep to go in or go out. He would protect them that way. He was the gate. He was their shepherd, but he was also the door to the sheep pen. Well, Jesus says he's not only the good shepherd who knows his sheep, who provides for his sheep, who protects his sheep, but he is also the gate to the sheep pen. Now, what is that meant to teach us? It's meant to teach us a number of things. First of all, in any sheep pen, there's only one gate. There's only one way into the sheep pen. When Jesus says, I am the door or I am the gate, what he means is that he is the only way into the sheep pen. If you want to be a part of his flock, there's only one way to get in, and that's through him. Nobody gets into the sheep pen to get at the sheep, and nobody gets in as a sheep unless the shepherd allows them. You have to go through the shepherd. Well, Jesus wanted his disciples to understand when he says, I am the gate, that he is the only way in. If you want to be a part of Christ's flock and find all the provision, all the care that you need, there's only one way to get there, folks, and that is through him. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father. That is, no one enters my flock but by me. Now, I'm well aware of the fact that that is offensive to many people today. I hear it all the time. In fact, I, you know, this is one of the assigned readings at funerals. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. But I can't tell you the number of funerals that I have been to where they leave off that last part. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, why do they leave that off? 
because the world finds that to be offensive. That Jesus claims to be the only way to the Father. It's what theologians call the scandal of radical particularity. It's radically particular and it's scandalous. It's scandalous. People say, oh, if God is loving, he's got to provide many ways. I believe that all rivers eventually flow into the same sea of faith. All roads eventually make it to the same destination. Okay, some are a little more circuitous than others. But in the end, we're all going to end up at the same place. Well, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say that all roads end up in the same place. He says there's one road that leads to the final destination. Everything else is a dead end, a blind alley. Now, many people find that to be absolutely offensive. But for those who have been called by name, who've heard the shepherd's voice, and it's resonated in their hearts and they have followed him, this message is absolutely glorious. You've heard me say this before. You can't look at this from a human perspective. You have to look at it from God's perspective. God looks at us and he realizes that we are all what? We're all sinners. There's no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. And the wages of sin is what? Death. That's what we all deserve because every single one of us is in the same mess. We're all dirty sheep. That's, that's, that's our condition. And there is no way to be saved. There's nothing we can do. Spiritually speaking, we're in the same boat as Lazarus was physically speaking. You can stand outside the grave and call on the dead person to come out, but he cannot do it unless the good shepherd comes and speaks his name and does for him what he cannot do for himself, makes him alive. God looks at it and he says, why are you complaining that there are not many ways? You ought to rejoice that there is a way. Any way. The fact that God provides a way for us is mercy. I've always said, and you'll hear me say this again, nobody, nobody on the day of judgment is going to receive injustice. You know, people will say, all I want from God is justice. Let me tell you something, that is not what you want. Because justice means what you deserve. How many of you really want what you deserve? What we want from God is what we don't deserve. We want grace. We want mercy. And that's what God provides. So when Jesus says, I am the gate, what he means is that there is no other way in. And anyone who would seek to tell you that there is another way into the sheepfold, another way to be saved, Jesus said, is a thief and a robber. It's interesting that he uses two words there. The first word translated thief is the word kleptes, from which we get our term kleptomaniac. A person who takes things that do not belong to, the, to them. And the other word is listes. It's a Greek word which means, it's translated here as robber, but it means somebody who takes by violence. So the first word sort of refers to what we would call a shoplifter. The second word is a reference to what we would call an armed bank robber. And what Jesus is saying is that anybody who says that there is another way, another way to be saved, another way by which we can enter into the fellowship and the joy of God's flock, that person is not just a thief. He is a robber who does violence 
to the lambs. So there's one way, one gate. Here's the second thing, though. Jesus wants us to understand that any may enter through this one gate. In other words, entrance into the flock is open to every single one of us. That's what Jesus says. He says, if anyone will come. Anyone can enter into this gate. This is not just reserved for righteous religious people. Salvation, the promise of of being content, of being able to lie down without any fear, every want provided for you, ultimately in heaven, that is a promise and an invitation that is open to every single person. This is why the Apostle Paul writing in Galatians says, for in Christ Jesus there is neither slave nor free, There is neither male nor female. There is neither Jew nor Greek. It doesn't matter if you're ignorant or educated, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, male or female. The invitation to enter into Christ's flock is open to you, whoever you are. It doesn't matter how bad or sordid your past may be. It doesn't matter how illustrious your path is. You can enter into Christ's flock. You just have to go through the gate. But here's the point. You must enter. You must go in. There is no other way to be saved. If you are not truly one of his flock, if you don't recognize the good shepherd's voice, You must enter through the gate. Now, Jesus goes on to say, when you enter through the gate, there are lots and lots of benefits. The first one is he says, you will be saved. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved. What does it mean to be saved? Let me suggest to you it means three things. It means to be saved from sin, And when we say saved from sin, what we really mean is saved from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin. What's the penalty for sin? Death. When you become one of Christ's flock, when you enter into his sheep pen through him, through the gate, you are saved from the penalty of sin. You path from death to life. You are no longer under judgment You are saved from the power of sin. How many of you can relate to what the Apostle Paul when he says the Apostle Paul when he says, the very things I want to do, I do not do, and the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. How many of you can relate to that? That's because we are powerless in and of ourselves. We have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. The very things we want to do, we do not do. The very things we hate, these are the things we find ourselves doing. And Paul cries out, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? But then he goes on to say this, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ who gives us the victory. He gives us the victory. The of sin Christ, through his Holy Spirit, comes to dwell within us, take residence in us, and he gives us the power to overcome sin when we did not have it before. And finally, in heaven, we are going to be delivered from the presence of sin. That's the promise. We shall be made like Christ. That's 
That's ultimate salvation, folks, to be made like Christ. That is what God is doing in and through the Holy Spirit. Even now, he is making us ever more into the image of his Son. The best way I know how to describe this is it's like playing with Play-Doh. How many of you as kids played with Play-Doh? Or, or you use cookie cutters. That's another way to do it. When you make cookie cutters to make an image, what do you do? You take that cookie cutter or that Play-Doh cutter and you, you press it into the dough and you lift it up and what do you have? You have this perfect imprint, except that there's all this excess stuff around the edges. What do you have to do with that excess stuff? You have to peel it away. That is what God is doing with us. When you and I enter through the gate, who is Jesus Christ, he implants his image upon us so that when God looks at us on the day of judgment, instead of seeing us with all of our brokenness and all of our our fallenness, what does he see? He sees himself. And even now, he's in the process of peeling away all of that excess stuff and making us perfect like unto Christ. We will find salvation from sin, salvation from death. We will find safety. As I said, we will be able to go in and go out. And most of all, in the here and now, we will find satisfaction. We will find that peace which the world cannot understand, that peace which passes human understanding. That even though the world is falling apart around you, you have a sense of contentment, a sense of peace that you know that in the end, he will never leave you, he will never forsake you, he will watch over you night and day. And one day he will lead you out into pastures into streams of living water where you can finally lie down, lay your burdens down, and find in him rest. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus and that he is the good shepherd who knows us, who cares for us, who values us, even when we stray, even when we are spiritually filthy. We thank you that he watches over us and protects us. We thank you that he is the good shepherd and he is also the door. And if there be any here today who do not know his provision, his care, I pray that they would right now make the decision to enter through him and to find all that they need, all that they desire, the one who will love them, care for them, and be with them always, even to the end of the age. For we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen. Amen.